I'm going to jump right in because there's a, a mouthful of things that I want to say that I believe the Lord gave me to say today. Ah. Um, if you want to open up to your in your Bibles to Ephesians 3, that's where we're going to hang. I'll read some other scriptures too, but we're going to hang there for most of the time. Today, we're going to talk about the centrality of the church in God's plan. So the church being the plan of God. Um, a lot of times we can view church as a building. We view church as a Sunday morning obligation. We view church, you know, th we've grown up believing church is one thing or the other because of what we've experienced, because of what we've been taught. Um, our culture has created a church culture, um, has infiltrated church culture, so it becomes just a Sunday thing, which was never a biblical thing, not even on a Sunday, <laughs> which is funny. Um, but we've created a lot of forms that we do things that aren't actually in the Bible. They're okay. But we're going to talk about what is the church and what are the pillars of the church. Because if we are the church, we should know what we are <laughs> and why we are and w the reason why God designed the church, why he had a plan for the church. So in Ephesians 3, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. This is a letter to them, and Paul is one of the apostles. He was assigned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, before this, only Jew Jews were the people of God, right? We know that from the Old Testament. The people of God were the Jewish people, and he protected them. He guarded them. He led them. He called them his own. He provided for them. He took them out of captivity. There's a lot that happened with them. And all of that was to point towards this New Testament reality called the church, God's own people, his own people that he would bring into his family. But the Gentiles weren't part of that. And so Paul is writing here, and he's and starting in verse 4, he says, um, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of God. Now, the mystery is that Gentiles and Jews are going to be brought together in Christ. That's the mystery. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific. So he's saying this is what the mystery is. This is what has been revealed. It wasn't before. Now it is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, the family, the church. Gentiles, for any of us that don't know, that's anybody who's not a Jew. So if you're not Jewish here, you are Gentile, <laughs> okay? Make that clear. Gentiles are <laughs> gentle, genteel, no, Gentiles. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the um, with the and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, that's Paul, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So right now he's saying this is what, by the grace of God, by the gift of God towards me, I've been given the privilege 
of preaching to the Gentiles, which was part of this mystery hidden for a long time. And right now, it's coming into the light. Gentiles are welcomed in. So that was a big, big, big thing that happened. For us, it's kind of normal now. We don't really think about it. But for that moment in time where Paul was preaching, it was a massive thing. Wow, the Gentiles can be saved. Some people were very offended by that. Well, it's only been the Jewish people. We've only been the people of God. Now it's Gentiles too. No, they're heathens. They're ungodly. No, we can't welcome them in. And Paul is saying, no, this is part of God's design since the beginning. And he says to me, verse 8, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that's kind of mouthy. And you're like, what the heck is he saying? Um, Paul, bring it down. Break it down for us because we don't get it. So his his job description, basically, what Paul was designed to do, one, it's there's two parts. One, preach to the Gentiles. That's what that first part said. Okay, got that? Two, to bring to light, to bring understanding of the administration of the mystery. That word administration in the Greek means household order. So he's, bring, he's preaching to the Gentiles, and then he's bringing the household order of the mystery. The mystery is the church. So he's bringing the household order of the church, how the church should function, what it's meant to be. Does that make sense? One, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Two, tell us how we're supposed to do this thing. What's the order? What's the household order of this mystery? which has been hidden in God, number uh, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So basically Paul's saying from eternity, God has had this plan, the church, the mystery, and all that has happened up to right now was to prepare for this moment where Gentiles would be welcomed in and be part of the family of God so that we could be a display where to spiritual places of what God's about to do. So this is massive. This is like, oh, my gosh, the God of the universe hid something from everybody for thousands of years nobody had a clue and then all of a sudden he sends his son like we talked about last week in a way that nobody wanted in a way that offended people he sent his son to redeem all people and bring two into one gentile and jew into the family of god so that we might display his wisdom I know that's it's really deep. If you keep thinking about it, you're like, <laughs> what is going on? What, so what are we? Who are we? What's, what's this all about? So basically, the church is the plan of God for the world. How is the world going to be reached? How are the lost going to get saved from the church? 
I know for myself, I used to have a very negative idea of the church. When I went into missions, I thought, oh, I'm going to preach the gospel, get a lot of people saved. I really don't want to connect them to a church because church usually messes people up. That's what I thought, being completely honest. I thought people would go to church, not be discipled, just go on a Sunday, get stuck in the ritual, be lost. And so I'm like, I can't do that. That's mean where I didn't really understand that I was myself a part of the church. Church was not a place. Church is not a location. It's people. It's God's people in the earth. And that's why there are local expressions of it. We are a worldwide, global family empowered by the Spirit to reach the lost. That's a massive plan of God. It's not just here in Carmel or here in Maine or here in the United States, it's in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God has set up his church to be filled with his spirit, empowered by his spirit to reach the lost, to be a declaration of who he is. And Paul was saying, this is how you're supposed to function so that the world would know that this is his plan, so that you would be a bright light shining in every community. And so when I've been to Haiti and Brazil, Russia, Bulgaria, France, Italy, like everywhere I've been, I've, I go to the people in the church and the same desire is found everywhere in every nation that Christ would be known, that the lost would be saved, and that the church would be established to be a light. The church is global. We're not just a few people here on a Sunday morning. Every church around us is part of you and me, and we're part of them. We're not separate. We're not divided. We're not two different places. We are one church. When God looks out from heaven, he doesn't see separate churches, the Baptists and the Methodists and the Pentecostal. He doesn't see that. He sees his people. He sees the church, big C church, right? That's how the Lord sees. There's no dividing. We as humans, because we are human and have a lot of faults and then have a lot of division, we point the finger, we judge, we divide. And that's why we have all the denominations that we have. That's why we have all the separation, nobody wanting to work together because we don't trust, because we don't even see that we're the same family. We don't understand what the church is. We don't understand our purpose. It's a big mess, right? So we have to renew our mind to understand that we're one together. Us, Tammy's church, down the road, literally like less than a mile down the road, we're the church together. We're not separate. And I know we've talked about this before. So why did Paul do what he did? He went about preaching. He would preach the gospel. He would gather the believers. So basically plant a church. He gathered them together. He would establish them in sound doctrine. He would teach them. He recognized his role and he gave his life for it because he knew this is the plan of God. 
I have been revealed. God has revealed to me what his plan is, and I'm going to give my life to make sure it happens. I'm going to do everything in my part with every grace and gift I have. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to gather believers together, and I'm going to teach them what they need to know, sound doctrine, so that they're unshakable in their faith, so that they'll be a light to the communities, so that the lost will be saved. Right? That's the purpose, that we would function as his family. So you might be thinking, why is this important to us? What does this have to do with who we are in Carmel? I think one of the biggest things, especially with 10 days of prayer going on right now, which is a, uh, a time where many churches, local churches, ex local expressions of the church, gather together to pray for unity in the church which is a, a major thing. So I think uh, one of the big things for us is recognizing that we need to break down barriers that are, cr that are there to the unity in the church. We ourselves need to break down any dividing wall in our own heart against another congregation or another local expression and then purposely work together with other churches to create unity and love serving one another in love without competition, without judgment, right? That's why we try to do things together. This is what the 10 days of prayer is about, is that we're making a declaration into the spiritual realm, like in, ver in verses 10 and, uh, 10 and 11, it says that they might be known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, it's not just in the natural. We're making a statement to the spiritual realm that God reigns in the earth and his people are here. Anytime we gather together as the people of God, this is not just a like, oh, we got to go to church Sunday, 1030 to 12, because we have to, it's church. No, when we gather together, this is a statement in the spiritual realm God is on the move, and he's going to do something wild through his people, that he has family everywhere gathering together regularly in his name. It's extremely important. So what makes a body of believers a church? I know I'm rushing through a lot of information because there's one point I really want to make today. Um, what makes a body of believers a church? Now, does any, like, when we gather on Wednesdays, are we the church? If Jay and Marie have two Christian friends over, are they functioning as a church in their home? What makes us a church? You know, Paul addressed, they went to Antioch, and they saw believers doing a bunch of stuff together, and they said, we need to go there, we need to disciple them, and they're the church. They recognize them as the church for specific reasons, some of those key pillars of what makes a church a church is prayer and worship. They were praying always, everywhere, all the time. Fellowship regularly. They were regularly gathering together. They were teaching of sound doctrine, and they were preaching and living the gospel. Those are what were main key points to what any church had to have to be a church. It wasn't just believers gathered together. We are each part of the church. Sometimes people go around saying, I am the church. And I say, no, you're not. 
you're a part of the church. Because if you think you are the church, then you don't need anybody else. And it's a very independent American mindset. Well, here I am. I'm the church. Well, that's really sad if you're just the church. No, the church is a group of people. We are the church. It will always be we, the community, the family of God. I am not the church. I am part of the church. Make sense? It, I know it might be slight, but there is a mindset behind it that says, no, I can be the church wherever I am. I'm the church. I don't need to fellowship with other believers because I'm the church. That's not right. That's not even biblical. We are the church. I am part of the church. So we're going to, for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of the pillars of being the church, what it looks like, what Paul's mandate was when he said he was anointed by God to put in order the church, to give us an order. We're going to look at those things. What were the things that he talked about? Because we want to be an expression of who God is, right? We want to be an expression to the spiritual realm. So the first pillar we're going to talk about is prayer. Prayer is extremely important. Why do we pray? So from the Old Testament onward, right, you think about all through the Old Testament, prayer has been a key to relationship with God. Prayer is a key to deliverance. Prayer was a key to victory in war both literally and spiritually. Prayer was a key to salvation from war, deliverance from war, dependence on God, and a reminder of our need. Moses is one of the people that I think about often, Abraham, Moses, who went before God all the time. Moses, particularly because he was saving people, all of Israel out of captivity, he constantly prayed on their behalf. And it was their deliverance, it was their freedom, it was to bring victory, and it was to remind them, hey, we can't do anything without him. That's what prayer's about. It says, I can't do this without you. I was never made to do this without you. When we forget to pray, we often forget that we can't do it without him. And that's when we try to do it without him, and we become stressed and anxious and heavy laden, and burdened, and heavy hearted, because we can't do it without him. So then we get to the New Testament. Jesus is here, and what example does he give us of prayer? Prayer was the fuel to his life, to everything that he did. When he was with the disciples, Jesus woke up and prayed early, early, early in the morning. Hours before anyone else was up, he was out praying. The disciples would wake up and be like, where's Jesus? He must be praying. That happened many times. You could read that multiple times in the gospel. They went out and found him praying in the early hours, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. So he wasn't sleeping. He was literally praying for those hours and then going out to do a full day of ministry. Prayer fueled his relationship to the Father It was in those times of prayer that he heard the direction for the day, that he knew what he needed to do. He knew where he was supposed to go because it fueled his relationship to the Father. It fueled submission to the Father because he was receiving direction as he prayed. 
he prayed, the Father spoke to him, and he submitted himself to that. It fueled his dependence on the Father. He said, I can only do what I hear the Father, uh, what I see the Father doing, and I can only speak what I hear the Father speaking. He was completely dependent. And then it fueled his union and his unity with the heart and purposes of God. I don't know, uh, you know, so many times we say we want to become more like Jesus. And we <laughs> do you really, though? <laughs> do you want to wake up at 3 a.m. every day and pray for four hours before your day? That's what Jesus did. When you say you want to be like Jesus, what you might want to specify because Jesus might, I mean, the God might be waking you up at 3 a.m. every day and just saying, hello, you said you want to be like Jesus. Time to get up. Time to pray. Time to listen. Really, though, we want to be like Jesus. So you want to live your life in service to others and then die on a cross for those who will reject you? Do you want to give your life to those who will never receive your love? What does it mean? We want to be like Jesus. It means we want to be all powerful. Well, he's seated on the throne. That's what I want to be like. I want to be with him up there, ruling and reigning before I have to die. No, we want to be like Jesus because we recognize, wow, he walked in power, compassion, love, kindness. But where did that all come from? It came from his union with the Father. And that came through a place of prayer. We downplay prayer so much because it's a discipline. It's not always easy. Sometimes you have to discipline yourself to pray, where you have to set your alarm clock and say, I'm going to get up even though I'm tired because our flesh is weak. I know that Jesus struggled. I can guarantee it to you because he had a flesh body, but he never let his flesh take over his spirit. He was always 100% of the time submitted to the spirit. And do you think he had some tired days? Of course he did. He was human. Do you think he always wanted to wake up? Well, he probably cultivated it so much that he did just always want it further on. I don't know if the beginning he just always wanted it. But when we start because we're like, I know this is what the spirit needs, it feeds it, then it grows into this extreme desire, right? Like, I can't get enough. I can't get enough of hearing his voice. I can't get enough of seeing his face, of spending time with him. The disciples saw that all the time. And so in Luke 11, 1, what did they ask him? They see him praying. I'm going to read it because it's awesome. Luke 11, chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, it happened that while Jesus was praying, again, he's praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. They didn't ask him when they saw him doing miracles, Lord, teach us to do miracles. They didn't ask him when they saw him healing people, Lord, teach us to heal people. They didn't ask him how to preach or teach or discern the thoughts of people's hearts and minds like he did all the time, and they were seeing that happen all the time. They didn't ask him to, oh, give us enough wisdom so that we can fool the Pharisees as well, because that's so cool when you, like, 
you know, ask them questions. No, they didn't. They saw him doing all that. But when they saw him pray, it awakened something in them that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They recognized that everything that fueled, that was what fueled every other part of his life. It fueled his ministry. It fueled his signs, wonders, miracles. It fueled his teaching, his preaching. Every wisdom that he had was fueled by the place of prayer. And wow, they recognized that. I don't know that I would have recognized that. Maybe. I think I'd be in awe of the miracles and be like, that's cool. Can I do that? That's cool. I really want to raise the dead. Could you teach me? <laughs> like, I want to see how that happens. I want to know what, because that's awesome. It's the power of God. But they saw what was more important, prayer and how. How do we last three hours in prayer like you? I don't get it. How do you go to pray and it just goes on and on and on and you don't get tired? How does that happen? Teach us to pray. And as soon as they recognize, so the disciples recognize it as the fuel and direction foundation of all that he did. And he taught them how to pray. And then as soon as he left, he was resurrected, right? And he had just given the Great Commission, which is go, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and teaching them all that I command them, and I will be with you to the end of the age, right? That was the command he gave. But then when he, that was right before he died, then he reappeared, and do you know what he said to him? What he said to them, he said, go and wait, you'll receive power from on high to do what I've called you to do. So there in Acts chapter 1, the very first thing that they do before they go out, before they fulfill the Great Commission, is Acts 1 verse 10. As they were gazing intently into the sky, because Jesus is now flying up, which is probably was so cool, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Jesus has been taken up from you in heaven. He'll come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. When they had entered the city, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. That is, and they name everybody. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They stayed up in that upper room for 120 days praying with no end in sight. They did not know when the Spirit was going to be poured out. They did not know when uh, what was going to happen, what it was going to look like. They had no idea. He just said, go wait. If you don't know how to pray, that would be a really hard thing. Waiting is hard. Prayer is hard. But I think the majority of the time, the reason why it's hard is because we, we have a bent toward our flesh more than the spirit. And it's just reality. It's not to be a downer on us. It is a reality. We are bent toward flesh things, eating, watching TV, relaxing, doing things that feed our flesh because it feels nice. When we start to pray and lean toward the spirit, we have to die to our flesh. That doesn't always feel nice. When you wake up extra early or when you stay up late praying, 
you you might have to die to your flesh. That doesn't always feel nice. It's easier to lean toward what feels nice, right? Harder. That's why it's hard to pray and to wait. But it's a command of God, and it will fuel us into the places that we want to go. E.M. Bounds, who is one of my favorite authors on prayer, he says, prayer honors God, and it dishonors yourself. I love that. Prayer honors God. It dishonors self. It is man's plea of weakness, ignorance, and want, a plea which heaven cannot disregard. God delights to have us pray. Prayer. So, Jesus, I just want to read some scriptures. There's so many, and I pick like 10, so I'm going to really zoom through them. If you want to write them down, you can. I'm going to just stick with my New Testament ones where Jesus and we've been commanded to pray. Mark 11:24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe you have received them and they will be granted you. Whoa. I could preach on each one of these. These are so powerful. 11, Luke 18, 1. Now he was telling them a parable and to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Do you know what parable that was? The widow, the persistent widow. She kept going to the judge, and the judge said, leave me alone. No, no, no. And she kept coming back and saying, no, but please, no, let da, da, da. And she pushed her way in where it said the judge, in the parable, it says the judge got so frustrated with how persistent with her she was that he gave in. That was a parable on prayer where Jesus said, keep on asking, right? That scripture that says, ask and you will receive. It actually says in the Greek, ask and keep on asking and you will receive. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and the door will be opened. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to offer up one prayer and expect things to be done. No, you got to keep on, keep on, keep on praying, keep on asking. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. This is what the church is. Ephesians 6, 18, which is talking about spiritual warfare. So it's saying put on all the armor and then with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This is the command in spiritual warfare. Pray, pray, pray. Don't stop praying. Pray. Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes our understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer brings peace. We give it to God. He gives us peace. We exchange our burden. He gives us peace. Colossians 4.2, this is Paul writing into the church. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an... <laughs> attitude of thanksgiving <laughs> yeah the w- the holy spirit just blew right through the window all right so we're going to keep going because i want to finish here pray without ceasing and then this last one first john 5 14 and 15 
I know it's distracting, but just listen for one second. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have whatever we've asked for. So the confidence is God hears your voice. God. So think about who God is. Big, can do anything, nothing impossible. He hears you when you're asking him. And if it's according to your will, you can be confident it will be done. So I think of this with Terry. We are persevering in prayer for Terry for a, a year and a half now. Praying, praying, praying. We're asking, 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 asking. And the reason why we don't lose hope and we don't lose heart is because we know we're praying according to the will of God and his promise through his word says he hears us and it will be done. So we're going to keep on asking until it's done. So to close, how is your prayer life? Gulp. I remember. <laughs> I know because it's a hard thing. Like where Gulp meaning like, yikes, do I even pray? You know, when was the last time I, t I took time aside to pray, to just talk to the Lord, to present my request to him? Maybe How's your personal prayer life? How is it corporately? We need to be gathering as the body to pray together. We have to be. It's not just each of us individually praying. That's great and very needed. We have to pray together to make a movement in the spiritual realm here. We have to fight our battles spiritually first. It, it, that's how we gain ground spiritually is when we pray corporately. We gain ground spiritually when we pray corporately together as a family. It's not legalism or an obligation. Legalism comes from a heart motivation of performance. So I'm doing this just so people can see and they don't judge me and they don't think the worst of me. I'm going to show up to prayer so that they don't think anything bad of me. Please, who cares what we think of you, number one? What does God say? We're living before him and his eyes, right? This is about the heart motivation. Freedom and truth is from the heart motivation of hunger and desire. I will deny myself because of my hunger for God. I'll deny myself because of my desire for God. That fuels my self-denial. I want God, and I want more of him, and I will deny my flesh anything to get closer to him. I will rip anything out of my life to have more time with him. Have our spiritual senses been dulled by distraction? And that's a big one and a hard one. Because I remember I've shared so many stories about street life. And this is what I'm going to close with. When I first went to street life, you know, I was 18 years old, and I was a very hyperactive person. I literally. Barry, I wanted you to hear this, actually. But that's okay. Just hold one second. Sorry, if you can. I, I was super hyperactive. I wanted to share you to hear this because I know you shared you're a very energetic person as well. I was super active and always wanting to do, 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 and I had a really hard time not doing. Really hard. 
So much so that when I went to Street Life, I was thinking, I'm giving my life to missions, and this is going to be 24-7. Like, I'm going to get four hours of sleep at night, and I'm just going to be giving my life to the Lord. And that's what I thought. And when I got there, and it was like, we worked for eight hours, and then I had the rest of the day to do what I needed to do. I felt like I had a lot of time on my hands. And I went to David thinking that he was going to be proud of me because I wanted to do more. I said, David, you know, I thought I was joining full-time ministry. Yeah, I have a lot of free time. Like, what am I supposed to do with all this time? And he said, you need, uh, I thought he was going to say, oh, I have plenty of stuff you can do because a lot of ministries would need people to do more stuff. He said to me, because he saw straight through and he said, you need to learn to wait and be alone with God. That was the last thing I wanted to hear. No, thank you. I'm a people person. I want to be doing stuff. I feel like I'm thriving. I hate being alone because then I'm with myself. And I don't. what it came down to is I didn't really like myself. I actually couldn't be with myself very long because it was like, nope, distract me from other people. But I did. I pursued a, that place of being alone with God and waiting on him. And you know what that developed in me? I started praying for hours every day. I would make a list. of. Now, you all know I come from a big family. So I listed out my siblings, 12 siblings and my parents, 14 people. And I would pray each one of them and then their spouse. So that's like, you know, like 30 people deep now just for my family. And I'm praying each one of them for about five minutes. Not even that long. I'm just like... Praying it, seeing what I, you know, praying what I see. And I started to love it more and more and more. My roommates would come and say, Wes, it's a day off. Let's go shopping. And I'd say, no, I want to pray. They did not like me. They thought I was, like, trying to convict them for not praying. But I literally, number one, I don't like shopping anyway. But I was, so I was like, give me a good excuse. Like, I get to pray. But I actually developed a love and a desire to be in this place with God where I could present my request to him, receive his heart, and know that it was done, and then start to see the results, right? Like when we pray for Terry, and we see also we're praying healing, and then she gives us a call and says, oh, yeah, the doctors looked, and there's nothing. And you're like, God is real. We won't have those if we don't pray. We won't have those times if we don't pray specifically. If we pray specifically, we see specific results, we glorify God for the work that he's done and that he hears us. So I want to encourage us today. I know, myself included, do I pray hours a day still? No, I don't. My life has brought me to all different places, and I'm not feeling condemned about it or anything, but I do believe that part of that is a distraction. Like, I have been pulled away by distractions of the world. And, I, you know, you guys know I'll be always open about my own stuff. If I'm, but I don't want to stay there. I want my hunger to ever be increasing. I want that for each of us, that we wouldn't just stay in one place like this, but that we're constantly just going a little step up and up and up and up closer and closer to the Lord where we are pushing and pursuing him and living our lives actually for him and for the eternal things 
that is a big part of what being the church is about. And so I wanted to start with that pillar. And I know this was really lengthy because I started out with all the what is the church stuff. But I wanted to go there to give you a view like we have to get alone with God. How is your personal prayer life? How is your corporate prayer life? Where are you plugging in corporately in prayer? And is it fueling your life? So not just like here and there when I feel like I have a need. No, is it fueling your life? Is it fueling your conversations? Is it fueling your ministry? We need to express our dependency on God through prayer. And so, Father, I'm just asking today, Lord, you know that it's hard for us. We get distracted easily. There's so much to be done, and our minds run a mile a minute, God, and you understand that. And so I'm asking, Father, for help today. I'm asking for help for Heather, for Kia, for Marie, for Jay, for Barry, for Heather, for Kayla, for Stephen, for Elizabeth, for Tommy, for myself, for Janet, for Jeremy. God, we're asking for your help in prayer, that you would teach us how to pray. We're coming to you like your disciples and saying, teach us how to pray, Lord. Teach us, bring us, give us a hunger and a desire for the place of prayer. We want it, God, and we need it. We need your help. So we look to you today for that, God, and we're looking and asking for you to help us even this week. We love you in Jesus' name. So we're actually going to take communion today. It's the first Sunday of the month.